Hi, I'm Elle. I'm an alcoholic. I have a sobriety date of June 6th of 2018. I have a home group. It's the Law Bunch of Irvine. And I have a sponsor who knows she's my sponsor. And I, I always say that because um, I spent a lot of time in these rooms saying I had a sponsor and that woman had no idea she was my sponsor. Um, I call my sponsor regularly. I keep in touch with other alcoholics. I go to a home group and I try to participate in this community as much as I can. And with saying that, um, the things I'm going to say up here tonight um, aren't necessarily like Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, Alcoholics Anonymous is a book and everything in that book is Alcoholics Anonymous. And like what I get to do up here is like my testament of what Alcoholics Anonymous has done in my life. I'm going to start off with uh, the only way I know how to share what it was like, what happened and what it's like now. Um, like you said, I'm from San Clemente, California. I uh, am the daughter to a principal and an Olympic cyclist. I had no reason to turn out the way I did. I had everything I ever wanted. You know, I had a roof over my head. I had a warm bed. I had hot food on the table every night. And I had parents that loved me, you know, the best they knew how. Um, and yet something was really wrong with me from like a very early age. I used to set up these uh, lemonade stands and I had all these posters about like save the seals and like I was raising money in my lemonade stand for the seals and then like I would get my money and I'd like go buy candy with it. Like I had no, absolutely no integrity at all. And I hated being told no, like my mom would tell me no and I'd like pull my hair out of my head and like scream as like a 10 year old. And my mom spent probably a fortune taking me to every therapist under the sun, trying to get someone to tell her I had a hormonal imbalance. Unfortunately, nobody could tell her I was an alcoholic and she just didn't know it yet. I uh, found alcohol when I was 13 years old. My parents went out of town and left me with my sister for the night. And I invited some boys from school over that were a little bit older than me and we popped into their liquor cabinet and it was the best night of my life. And I embarrassed myself deeply. I think I ended up like in a shower with clothes on and like falling over and like probably what you would imagine a 13 year old drunk would be doing nothing good because children shouldn't be drinking at that age. And yet I was, cause my head goes, 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 goes from a, from the very beginning. And it was the first thing that ever shut it up. And from that point I was like off and running, you know, I, uh, I find alcohol in all forms. I love to snort alcohol. I love to shoot alcohol. I love any way you can put it. I will take it. And the harder that it hits me, the better I think it is for me. I remember being extremely loaded and having an argument with my father that like, this was my medication. Like that's how like screwed up I am in the head that I was like, this is my medication. You guys always wanted there to be something wrong with me. Like now there is. <laughs> and like, inevitably I turned 18 and my parents said like, Hey, you need to go to a meeting or you need to get out. And I didn't really have any plans. So I like walked into my first meeting. And I sat there at 18 years old and I heard a lot of uh, people who had been to prison, a lot of people who had been homeless, this, that, and the other. And I didn't hear like, oh, I must not be an alcoholic because I haven't done that. I said, I bet I can do that. You know, I heard things like that and I thought like, I'm going to do that. And then I would meet my dealer in the parking lot and I'd be off again. Um, fast forward a little bit. I um, met a boy at a meeting one day. Boy meets girl on AA campus, like 12 and 12 talks about, and it's doomed from the beginning. Uh, we ran off to Reno, Nevada together, the land of lovers. And we lived there, like on the Reno, Nevada strip for quite a while, like doing drugs. And like, when I tell you, like, I'm a crazy person, I am a crazy person. Because like this man and I had nothing in common, 
besides drugs and like here I am like lying that like I'm pregnant like doing drugs just like keep him around like there's something fundamentally wrong with me because I can't get honest I can't get sober and I can't like make any like virtually good decision for myself in any way you know and like if anybody's heard of like doing the geographic or there's a story in the book actually and it's like called a Called like Gone with the Wind or something. It's the Native American story. She's talking about going state to state to state. And she says that she drove into a state and the sign should have said this state doesn't work either. And like, that was me. I lived in Reno, Nevada. I lived in Oregon. I lived in Seattle, Washington. I lived in North Dakota. I went place to place to place to place and burned everything down behind me and went, well, they were the problem, not me. And I'd like move on to the next place. I was 20 years old. I uh, was on the run from some charges in Washington and I thought I'd go and hide out in Seattle or not in Seattle, in Oregon. And uh, even like hiding out, I can't do the right thing. I'm like in this Target, like stealing video games so I can like sell them to a GameStop to make some money. And like, I got identified on a Target camera by my tattoos. And like, this is like the kind of alcoholic I am where I've like robbed people all over Washington. And I'm in Oregon thinking like, this isn't a big deal. Like the heat's gonna cool down. And like, obviously like somebody wanted me bad enough to identify me off my tattoos and a target. And Washington police come down and they get me and they book me and I'm sitting there and the CEO walks up to me and he says, did you know you were pregnant? And that is the worst thing a junkie sitting in a jail cell can hear. You know, and like, here's the thing, right? Like I'm still convinced I don't have a problem. And Bill talks about this in his story. He talks about like his wife being disturbed by his drinking and his friends thinking a lunacy committee should be appointed. And like everybody can see Bill's problem but him. And like, that's exactly how I am. Like I'm sitting in a jail cell, like the outlaw safe cracker, the alcoholic who was lost all and locked up, pregnant with like nothing to show for myself. I'm like homeless, a drug addict. I've got multiple felonies and I can't see my problem. Like at all. And everyone else around me is like, hey, you should probably get sober. Like, hey, you should probably do this. And I'm like, no, I'm not the problem. The problem is my boyfriend. The problem is I don't have enough money. The problem is I'm homeless. The problem's never me. And so they leave me in that jail cell for three months and I get out and I'm off and running again, you know? By the grace of God, I'm born with a, um, an absolutely like beautiful baby girl. You know, no matter how much damage I did to myself and no matter what kind of things should have happened to that little girl, she came out beautiful and she came out healthy. And I can hold that little baby girl and like, that's not enough to save me from my alcoholism. Um, Cause I can hold that baby girl and I can say, I love you and I'm never gonna let anything hurt you. And then I can put that baby girl in a stroller and I can go and like rob a convenience store with her in the stroller. My alcoholism is so loud and it's so dangerous and it's so detrimental to like everything and everyone around me. And I'm in so much denial of it when I'm using and drinking. And inevitably, you know, like the child gets taken from me and like, that's not enough. Now the problem's Seattle and I'm like off to North Dakota. Um, I lived in North Dakota for six months. This was uh, my last geographical. This was my, my last grand plan. And uh, it's there that I meet a very nice man who just got out of prison. And like, once again, like I'm in love and everything's gonna be fine. I'm gonna get the kid back. And I, has anyone seen that movie like Spun where it's uh, 
what's her name? Brittany Murphy. And she's in the car and they're driving and she's talking about like what a good mom she's gonna be. Like that's me. Like I'm in the car. I'm like, I'm such a good mom. I'm such a good mom. And I like haven't seen my kid in like six months. And I'm like, just a psychopath. I'm delusional. I'm so disconnected from reality. You know, when we talk about the Florida businessman who's retired and rolling in the Florida sunshine, like complaining of the sad state of the nation, like that character that the book painted is so disconnected from reality. You know, obviously society has like done him correctly if he can like retire in Florida and he's like laying there on a beach and he's like, wow, look at the sad state of the nation, you know, like that's me. I'm absolutely disconnected from whatever the heck's going on in the real world. So me and this man get into um, quite a bit of trouble. I uh, try getting on some planes with some things in my bags I shouldn't be getting in with my plane. And I'm in California and um, going back and forth from here and North Dakota doing what I think that I need to do when uh, we get federally indicted. Um, the DEA busts in on his end in North Dakota. They bust in on me in a motel in San Clemente. And uh, I'm, I'm out of cards. You know, like that was the final straw. I had no other moves. Everybody I knew was going to prison. Um, I ended up getting released because they could, didn't actually catch me moving anything. And I have nothing left. I've got no drugs. I've, my family stopped talking to me long ago. I haven't seen my kid in like a year. And it like occurs to me that like, I'm going to go to rehab. Like this is like the first good idea I've ever had in my life. Like I'm going to go to rehab. And I start calling around and I like don't have any insurance. And everyone's like, oh, well maybe you can try this one place. And they're like, there's a three month wait list. I'm like, you don't understand. Like I need to go now. And um, there's a rehab in Costa Mesa and they told me that they would scholarship me because they're very like mother, mother daughter friendly and they wanted to help me get my kid back. And so I like wash up into this rehab, you know, like just beaten down by my own hand. And I remember getting there and like my first thought being like, who am I gonna have to pretend to be to survive here? What an absurd thought, like when I think back on it, but I took my entire life pretending to be somebody or the next person, the next person to get what I wanted. And it wasn't about survival. It was like me and my selfish wants and like, how could I manipulate everyone around me to give me what I wanted? I'm really good at playing the victim. I'm really good at playing the villain. I'm really good at playing every end of the spectrum. And for the first time, I was like too tired to pretend to be anybody. I was just like this shellless, soulless human who had like arrived. I think it's funny when people like say like, oh, I've arrived, you know, because like Bill Wilson doesn't use that in like a positive light, you know, he uses it in this very negative light, like, because when he talks about it, nothing that great is about to happen. It's like when everything's about to go downhill. But um, I wash up into this rehab. I uh, am sitting on these lawn chairs out on the grass. And this uh, woman comes up to me and she was wearing Lululemons and I hate Lululemons. Um, I hate them because they're spandex and they shouldn't cost that much money. And she had like this beautiful long blonde hair and like the perfect little workout body. And she's from New York, she had this like New York accent. She said, hey you. And I was like, what? What could you possibly want from me? Like I'm like three days sober, like please leave me alone, ma'am. I've got the chills, I've got the sweats. If I open my eyes, I'm gonna puke. I'm just laying here in the sun, hoping at least something will stop. 
this woman comes and sits down and she asked me what my name is. And I said, oh, my name's Elle. And she said, Elle, how many women do you see in day bars? And I said, I don't know, none. And she said, that's because they're all dead. And there was like this flicker of hope, like, oh my God, thank God I'm going to die. You know, like this is going to be over. <laughs> <laughs> and then she looked at me and she said the most piercing thing that has ever been said to me in my entire life. She said, I'm going to let you know right now, you're not lucky enough to die. You're going to continue to walk this earth, living a spiritual death, hurting everything and everyone in your path. And nothing had ever disturbed me like that, you know, because like everything I had known up until this point was just like pain and like dragging myself from one drink to one drug to the next, you know, and drag myself to one state, to the next man, to the next couch for these like 30 second windows of relief. And the fact that this woman told me like that was going to be the rest of my existence was the cruelest thing anybody could have ever said to me. And she didn't say it to be mean. She said it to like get through to me, you know, because like here I am, I'm 21 years old. I'm in rehab and, uh, this woman can see right the fuck through me. She asked me if I own keys to anything. And I said, no. And she asked me if I had a bank account. And I was like, no. And she asked me um, if anyone was proud of me. And I was like, absolutely not. You know, and then she proceeded to ask me some other things. She said, um, Elle, do you steal things? And in my head, because I'm like delusional, you know, I'm like, no, I work for my money. Like I put in work. <laughs> <laughs> It's the person I am now and the person I was then is so funny to me because I would never say something like that today. But like, I thought I was like very hard and very gangster at the time. And I remember telling her like, no, I don't steal things. And she told me I was the worst kind of thief of them all because I stole people's timepiece and energy. And I was like, fuck out. <laughs> you know, but it was like because of that woman that someone finally got through to me. Because I didn't know what that one was selling, but I knew I was buying it. You know, I was like, hey which lady who knows everything about me how do you know that and she told me that one alcoholic could relate to the next and that it took a woman who could carry a message of death and weight that was going to get through to me and like that woman had that and so I like proceeded to ask that woman to sponsor me and I didn't really know much about AA I'd hung out in some rooms before but if you asked me I thought the fourth step was when you made amends and like the second step was like an inventory and I didn't even know what a ninth step was. And I was like, yeah, just take me through it. Whatever you're doing, I just want it. Sell me on it. Take, let me have it. And I was so desperate and I was so hopeless. And it no longer mattered if I was like going to get my kid back. Because that was like my grand or lie that like I took with me everywhere. That like I was a great mom and going to get my kid back. And that like ceased to matter. I made this decision that like I'm going to get sober with or without the kid. And I'm going to get sober with or without her dad getting it together. And I'm going to get sober with or without my mom answering the phone. All of those things that I thought I wanted didn't matter anymore. The only thing that mattered was like, if I could like show up and get sober for today and then maybe the next day and so forth. And so this woman took me through nine steps. Um, I got sober originally in a fundamentalist AA group where they start you on a third step. You know, I got really good at sharing in meetings that, uh, hi, my name's Ellen. I'm working a third step, right in a fourth, you know, and like sitting back down. Um, and that was what I needed at that time. I got put on a very rigorous course of action. And it was that kind of discipline and that kind of like demanding, like get your work done now. This is all that matters. Share like this, walk like this, talk like this. And I needed. I needed a complete reprogramming. 
And when people like come to AA and they're like, I don't want to join AA, it's a cult. And it's like, what we alcoholics like don't realize right away is like, I need to be in a cult, like really bad. Like I need somebody to brainwash me personally. If this was like a cult where like I could like kill a goat and stay sober forever, that might have been easier and I would have been more into that. But the terms set in front of me were a lot easier than I thought they were going to be. They were very simple. I just made them very hard for myself. Um, my sponsor asked me if when it rained, if I thought, if when I cried, if it started to rain. And I said, no. And she said, when you blow, does the wind move? And I said, no. And she said, well, then you know you're not God. And I don't care anything else about your higher power. And then we moved on to a four-step. And I wrote a four-step. I was as honest as I possibly could be at that time. And then I sat there during the fifth step and had a woman tell me exactly my part in all of that. Um, that was honestly my first spiritual awakening, like being told like, hey, like I have a hand in all of this, which means I have some control in like whether or not it happens again. Um, if I cannot act like A, B, and C, then like odds are these situations probably aren't gonna repeat in my life. And that was like the first glimmer of hope I got in this room outside of that woman knowing exactly who I was without ever meeting me. Um, she then sent me out to do amends and pray on my character defects and like go help newcomers and all that other stuff. Um, I think the most important thing that woman taught me is the first day I asked her to sponsor me. She said, you go help somebody today and you call me tonight and tell me what you did to help somebody. And every time I called her and told her what I did to help somebody, she told me again to do it for the next day. And she did that for seven days before we finally had a real conversation. And she implemented it into me immediately, like how important it was to do service work and to help the newcomer. In the doctor's opinion, we already start to talk about service work, right? Like we talk about Bill coming back to the hospital and like trying to share his story. And then in Bill's story, we talk about Ebby coming to Bill's house and like he tries to help the alcoholic and he tells Bill how important it is to like go help the alcoholic. And in every single chapter, we talk about service work. We don't just talk about it in working with others. Like it's from the very beginning, the book's like, hey, this is important, you should do this. And so when I meet people who like think it's all about them because they're the newcomer, like they're sadly mistaken. This is all we've got. Like when I don't want to look at my character defects, when I haven't reached out to God in a while, when I didn't make it into a meeting or whatever, like my service work is all I have left. And luckily, like in today's day and age, it's so easy. Like I could call any alcoholic at any moment and be like, how's your day going? And odds are they'll tell me because we love to talk about ourselves. I got to some point in my sobriety where that route of step work wasn't working for me anymore. Um, I somehow like turned my sponsor into my higher power. Whatever she said was all that mattered to me. Like if I'm, if I wasn't at a meeting because I was sick, like I was going to get drunk in my head because she was going to be disappointed that I wasn't at the meeting. And if I didn't, call her exactly at 6 p.m. on the dot. I was going to get drunk because she wasn't going to approve of me. You know, it was at that time that I like, told my sponsor, like, hey, like, I am unwilling to be honest with you anymore. And that's not your fault. Like, that's my fault. And I ended up getting another sponsor and, like, working the steps again. And that's, like, the beautiful thing about the 12 steps in AA is that we get to peel back this layer every single time we work the steps. And so I got into a deeper fourth step, which was so much more thorough than the first one. Cause like now I've got a little bit more time under my belt. I'm a little bit more able to be honest. You know, the mental fog has cleared and now I remember a little bit more. 
of like, you know what, I did this too. And actually I'm angry about this. And actually this is my part in that. And then I do six and seven again. And then I go and like make some really beautiful amends again. And I just keep going and I keep working. And that's amazing, you know, because like if this was the peak right here, right now, like this moment in front of you guys talking, like this was my peak and everything was downhill from there. Like that'd be kind of a bummer because that's not what I signed up for either. I signed up for like this life beyond my wildest dreams. And this life beyond my wildest dreams is kind of manifested in the fact that like I haven't been homeless in three years, you know, like I have consistently had a roof over my head and a bed to sleep in. There was a brief moment of time I had to sleep on my sponsor's couch, got kicked out of sober living, but like I always had a roof over my head and it's manifested into like being a real employee who like gets promotions and like shows up to work and like, it's not all about me at work, you know, like every day before I walk in, I work, I say, God, please make me a maximum usefulness to my coworkers, to my clients and to my employers. And then I just go in there and like try to be a worker among workers. And that is something beyond me. Like that is God right there. Um, my mom talks to me today. That's wild. My dad talks to me today. That's even more wild. Dads don't give easily. And I mean, sorry, it's so hard to talk about my daughter. Sometimes like I'm a mom today, you know, like my daughter lives with me and my daughter knows I'm her mom. And that's a whole uphill battle in itself, like raising a kid. But like, I got that opportunity today. I got that opportunity to like show them and be like, hey, Lily, you actually have to like eat your food, you know? Because once upon a time, that was never my reality. Once upon a time, like I was going to die without ever seeing her again. And like today I wake up and she's sleeping in the bed in the room next to me. And there's not words for that, you know? When I got sober, like a life beyond my wildest dreams in my head was just like solely that like I could keep getting loaded and no one was going to bother me about it. And so when we talk about being like rocketed into the fourth dimension, like a life beyond my wildest dreams in the fourth dimension, you know, like that's unfathomable. Um, I want to say congratulations to the chip takers. Thank you so much, Jess, for um, speaking for me. <laughs> you do really good. <laughs> You didn't fuck it up like I hoped you would. <laughs> um, congratulations to the birthday takers. Happy birthday, Sean. And happy birthday. I can't fathom nine years. I can't fathom it. You know, I, uh, I got two years sober and I thought it was a fluke. And then when I got three years sober, I was like, somebody really screwed something up in the space time continuum somewhere because this was never supposed to happen. Um, the idea of having nine years seems impossible. So thank you so much for coming up here tonight and showing me that someone can get nine years. I, uh, I've been watching the people around me a lot lately. I was talking to that in early sobriety is like watch the alcoholic I was told. And I didn't know what that meant. And I still kind of like, don't know what it means, but I watch it. And I've watched a lot of the women I've come in here with come out. And I've watched women who had been here for years when I got here, go out. And like that stuff's frightening. It's frightening because like, I know there's a lot of men in the room tonight, but, like as women, our bodies don't last as long out there. And like, I'm a feminist through and through, but like the book talks about that. We just don't last as long. Um, I got sober at 22. I'm 25 now. And people tell me all the time, like, oh my God, you're so great. You're so smart. You got sober young, you know? And it wasn't that I was like so smart. It was like, I destroyed my life that drastically, that quickly. 
And so there's nothing smart about a thing I did out there. You know, the only smart thing, and it wasn't me, was that God brought me here. I, uh, I've been reading We Agnostic a lot lately, not because I'm agnostic, just because I think I skimmed it a lot in my early sobriety. And uh, it talks about we were living by faith and little else. And I kind of have been trying to break down like what that means to me. And like what I'm saying when we live by faith and little else, right? It's like, I can ask Jess to come be my 10 minute speaker. And I can have faith that she's going to like show up here and be a 10 minute speaker. And like, I can hand my boyfriend my portion of the rent and have faith that the rent's going to get paid. And I can get my car and like have faith that it's probably going to get me to work. And yet I don't put that same readiness of faith in God all the time. You know, um, I live by faith in little else. I live with the reliance that like the things that I've put in places are going to do what they're supposed to do. And yet, even though I put God in the center of my program, sometimes I take that faith away that like God's not going to make it work out the way I want it to. I, uh, I love to talk about God, like he's working on things and like he's got these things, but like you know how like a watch pot never boils? Like, I feel like God's saying that to me sometimes. It's like, I'm like, hey, God, here's the problem. You work on it. And then I'm just like, okay, how's it going down there? Any progress? And he's like, it's been three minutes. And I'm like, I'm sorry. Um, but I do that in so many aspects of my life. And that I think is the biggest place that I struggle today. And I think that that's something that's going to repeat always and always and always because we never find God. At no point do we go like, I found God, this is it, the journey's over, we're homies, everything's good. Like, God is something I have to constantly seek out, and it's constantly evolving, it's constantly growing, and I constantly have to reach for God. And then he shifts a little bit, and then I have to reach for him again. And like, <laughs> I am so sick of chasing God sometimes. I just want like God to sit in the kitchen I put him in and boil the water and make my life look like what it's supposed to be, and like God doesn't do that. God says, like, if you want to have a relationship with me, grow one. You know, I, uh, if the word God freaks anyone out, I'm sorry. Um, whatever, though. Um, <laughs> I suffer from codependency, as I'm sure most of us do. And it's like, I am so codependent, like, on my boyfriend, you know? Like, if he's not, he'll, like, go speak at a panel. And the panel's been over for 10 minutes. I'm like, why hasn't he called me? Like, did he get hit by a car? You know, like just like crazy stuff like that. I was in the car. I was laying at home today thinking about how I could get out of this. And I was like, I could lie and say my boyfriend died. And, <laughs> and I was like, fuck, well, then I have to explain that. And I can't get rid of him because I'm so codependent on him. And I'm like codependent in my friendships, right? Like they're not allowed to have other friends. I'm the only friend. That's not actually true. I let them have other friends, but it's only because I let them. Um, but my point being is that... I need to apply that kind of like codependency to my higher power. That's my point in all that. And I use those funny examples because I feel like they're kind of relatable in some way. Like everybody has that person in their life that's like so important that it's like they can't breathe and they're not around sometimes. And if you don't, I'm sorry that you're healthy. Um, but I want to apply that same kind of readiness to my God. Like I want to have codependency on my God. I want to fully entrust and fully be checking in and fully be meditating with like my deepest of hearts place in God. And like, that's currently like what I'm trying to find. And like, that's what my God looks like today.
we talk a lot about like finding a power greater than ourselves. We don't talk a lot about like believing he will restore us to sanity. You know, like I have a God, I've got a God all day. I came here with a God. I was raised Catholic, but that God didn't restore me to sanity. And so I started seeking him. And so like, I'm continuing to try to seek him and continuing to try to take inventories. Like that's why I'm still here today because I continue to take an inventory and spent my sponsor once a week. I write like all seven of them and send it to her at the end of the week. But like, despite that, um, I knew at a party last night that Matt's at and I can just talk smack to him all night, you know, and then like come up here the next day and act like I'm super spiritual. <laughs> and the only reason like I'm sober enough to come up here is because like I wrote an inventory on it. And like at some point Matt will like maybe get an amends. But <laughs> my point being is that like I am so far from perfect. And the book talks about that, like progress, not perfection. And it's like, I am seeking codependency in God. I'm constantly writing inventories. I have a ton of character defects. I've talked about a few of them, character assassinating people, being codependent. Like I've got character defects that I'm constantly working on. And then I make amends when they're necessary. And then I like trying to work with some sponsees. And like, that's all it really took. Like that was it. It's very, very, very simple. And yet my head made it very, very, very hard. Um, God, these things are hard to do because they're so long. Um, I didn't say this earlier, but I wanted to thank Anna. Um, Anna asked me to speak tonight and it was one of the wonderful women I get to speak with and work with. And it keeps me sober on a daily basis. You know, um, my sponsees keep me sober some days. You know, I have a four-year-old daughter. I've got sponsees. I've got a full-time job. Um, I don't make it to a meeting seven nights a week like I'd like to, you know, but I can answer the phone seven nights a week, you know, and I can show up to do staff work and I can do certain things that were always done for me again and again and again. And it didn't matter how many times I showed up here, you know, I could show up on the church doorsteps like, Hey, I'm trying to get sober again. And there's always some woman willing to put her hand out to me. And so as long as I continue to be willing to do that and like put my hand out to the woman behind me, then like I'm doing the best I can is my belief. You know, I do have a home group and it's important to me that I make it to that home group. But at the same time, like my recovery looks so different than when I got here. When I got here, I had a bike and a duffel bag and a lot of free time. And I could just ride my bike to meetings and ride my bike back to sober living. And like, that was all that mattered. And like, God has given me so many gifts. He's given me a home. He's given me my beautiful daughter back. He's given me a partner. He's given me friends. He's given me a wonderful dog that I love so much. And the way that I can show gratitude by those, for those things is like showing up and taking care of them. And if I'm sitting in a meeting every night, like when my daughter's sick with a fever, I'm like not showing God, gratitude by God. I like not taking care of her. And trust me, that seems really easy sometimes. Like sometimes I want to call my mom and be like, Lily, can you come get her? I have to go to work. And like, that's not what moms do. Like moms show up. Um, it's really important to me that I show gratitude for the things I have by taking care of them. I mean, the book talks about we don't make a sole vocation of this work. If we did, it would hardly be useful. And it talks about um, everything we learn in this room being far more important in the real world. And like, I truly believe that, you know, as much as I love having a chair in these rooms, I didn't get sober to have a chair in these rooms. I got sober to like be able to take care of the things that matter to me. I mean, I guess that's all I really have to say tonight. Um, 
hopefully there was something useful to someone in there, but thank you guys so much for having me. Um, thank you again, Anna. I don't think you're on there, but maybe I'll listen to the podcast later. And uh, yeah, thank you again.